You are now listening to the Life on Repeat podcast with Laura Valancourt, licensed mental health counselor, geriatric mental health specialist, and elder care coach. I'm so happy that you found us. Well, hello, everyone. I am thrilled to get to interview this guest that we have today. Her name is Gail Weatherall, and Gail is a registered nurse and just wrote the most amazing book called The Caregiver's Guide to Dementia, Practical Advice for Caring for Yourself and Your Loved One. And I'll read a little bit about Gail here, and then we will jump in. I cannot wait for this conversation. So Gail has been specializing in the care of people with dementia and their families for the past two decades. As a certified Alzheimer's educator and the co-founder of the online support group, Alzheimer's and Dementia Caregivers Support, with more than 50,000 members worldwide, Gail now trains and coaches family and professional caregivers as the dementia nurse. I love that, Gail. (laughs) The dementia nurse. (laughs) There's only one. There's only, that's you. (laughs) Well, I want to just start out this interview by letting the listeners know a little bit about the story that you and I were just talking about. I went out to complete an assessment with a family who is caring for someone who has dementia. And when I walked into their home and met with this lovely woman, she let me know that she had dementia and she went to her bookcase and she pulled out your book, (laughs) which blew me away because I'm, you know, I have the book. I know the book. I had the opportunity to get to know you a little bit because you presented on the Get in the Lifeboat Summit over a year ago. And it was just such, such an endearing moment for this woman who has dementia to show me this book. And it, it she almost presented it to me as this it's kind of a guidestone for a guidepost for her. You know, she raved about the book. She carries it with her everywhere. And I just, it was just such a beautiful story. That's pretty mind boggling, actually. I mean, actually, you sent me a photo. She had agreed for you to take her picture. When I saw it, I thought she was a family member. So when I found out that she's actually living with dementia and was using the book as kind of a touchstone. I, I mean, it did. I mean, that just sent me literally over the rainbow because when I wrote that book, my fervent hope was just that it would go as far and as wide as it was meant to go and help as many people as it was meant to help. So that just... Uh, that just made my year. It really did. I was so so happy. happy. I'm so glad I shared that with you. And I mean, it really, it kind of brought tears to my eyes when she pulled it out. I just couldn't believe. Because where do you live, Gail? Where are you? Virginia. I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia, home of last year's NCAA. I love it. Well, I'm in Olympia, Washington. So the fact that that book found its way into this gal's living room was pretty neat. (laughs) It's a beautiful thing. 
Well, tell me a little bit. I would love to hear, and I'm sure our audience would too, how, what got you into this work? How, you know, what's your story? How did you end up working with family members who are um, caring for someone with dementia? And Well, there I was, minding my own business. Actually, my love affair with people living with dementia started over 40 years ago when I was a nursing student at University of Virginia. And I had an incident during a clinical rotation one day that I didn't know it at the time, but it was it was definitely a sign of things to come. You know, I was a third year nursing student and you have to go to the hospital a couple of days a week and do your clinical where they assign you to one patient. They make you wear this dress and apron that they might as well tattoo you saying, I know absolutely nothing because I'm a student. So don't ask me anything. So I'm there and I'm taking care of this woman up on the internal medicine floor, but it was a semi-private room. And the woman in the B bed actually lived at what we call Western State, which was at the time one of the few state quote unquote psychiatric hospitals. It was a descendant of the asylums, basically, with all the nurse ratchet things you kind of think about from that, because this was this was like 1978. Wow. wow. So And her name was Annie, and Annie lived at Western State, and she looked like it. She was tall and thin, and she was African-American, and I swear, I don't think anybody had touched her hair for God knows how long. But for whatever reason, that afternoon, she went off. I'm there minding my own business. All of a sudden, there's a hubbub on the other side of the curtains. Other nurses start coming in, and I can hear her screaming at the nurses no stop it and the nurses are like don't bite me we're trying to help you you need to do this the more people that piled in and the more that they said the more out of control she got and so they finally thought "Mm, we're gonna have to call the doctor for this so they all left like all at one time (laughs) which was interesting but when they left the room And all of a sudden, it was awesome because all of a sudden, the noise level disappeared and it was quiet. And this woman's standing there and she's still upset and she's still just shaking. And it just came from somewhere inside of me. And I just looked at her and I said, you don't know anybody here, do you, Annie? And that was all it took. It was like a rock broke. And she just started crying and whimpered, no. And I, it was just amazing. And, and, you know, at that point she was totally approachable. And I'm like, well, you're probably tired. And there's a nice bed right here. Do you want to lay down for a little while and rest? And 
So by the time the nurses came back with their doctor's orders, Annie was in the bed covered up and taking her afternoon nap. And I didn't think anything of it until a couple of weeks later, my clinical instructor said the nurses had come to her and said, I don't know what that girl down there did with that woman, but something happened there and something did happen. And it really was a view of things to come because what I have found and what I love about working with people in dementia is that there is a back door once the brain isn't working properly. There are ways to reach people that if we'll just stop and think about it and think about where they might be coming from and connect and looking at all these wild behaviors as people not trying to give you a hard time, they're, it's the only way they know to communicate that they're in some kind of distress. The only so, way that they could understand. I love, oh my gosh, what a beautiful story. I, I see, yeah, I mean, I can see that that's something that is so important when you are working with somebody who has dementia is to, I tell people to get underneath the content, you know, like right. the content of the distractions and the chaos and the stimulation and mm -hmm. you can just get underneath that. That's what I was, um, I actually worked as a director of nursing for a, a combination of assisted living and nursing home for several years. And uh, oh, I love the people that worked with me. I loved my CNAs most of all. And they would come and they go, oh my Lord, you know, Mr. Jones is down there swinging from the chandelier. And somebody's like, well, go get Gail. I come in and I just say, okay, that's it. That's uh, everybody out. Uh, give me, give me 10 minutes here. And, you know, he really would be totally off the chain and I would get everybody out, cut the noise, cut the stimulation. Mm -hmm. And when they came back 15 minutes later, me and Mr. Jones would be sitting there smoking a couple of big fat cigars and singing John Prine songs. So <laughs> what is it? What is it that, what would you say, you know, if you were to describe to somebody, what did you do? What are you the doing? Mojo. What is the mojo? Yeah. What's the mojo? <laughs> the mojo is understanding that all behavior has meaning. And that's kind of a trite, you know, people say all oh, behavior has meaning. You go, yeah, yeah, whatever. But it really is true. And if we can step back from the behavior itself and think about, I mean, first of all, you've got to cut out all the stimulation because if somebody can't listen to one person talk, I can guarantee you they're not going to listen to three or four people telling him what to do. And everybody's standing around thinking they're being helpful. Oh, I'm going to add what, oh, we ought to say this to him. So they're well-intended, but the more that's said, the more confused the person gets. And the more confused they are, the more their anxiety level is going to go up. So it's a matter of let's just totally de-escalate everything. And even in home settings, when people are, I always call it swinging from the chandelier at home, 
as long as they're in a safe environment, just leave them alone. Just go away. Come back in 10 minutes and they'll be on another planet by then. Pick your battles. Yeah. I, I recently did a talk where we were talking about assessing the level of uh, safety and initially, you know, with, Mm -hmm. with quote challenging behaviors is if they're safe, if you're safe, then, you know, (laughs) that's right. So lock up the guns, keep them in the house and let the good times roll. You know, (laughs) it, it always goes back, but did he die? You know, I mean, it's, we think, oh, I can't leave them in a state like that. Well, yeah, you can. And, Mm -hmm. you know, probably you in there trying to talk him into not being like that is only going to make it worse. I teach a course on for hospital nurses about how to deal with people with dementia when they come into the hospital, because that's a whole nother adventure in and of itself. Thank you. One of the things that I say is when we think about it, you know, dementia is a matter of brain failure. We talk about kidney failure. We talk about heart failure. You don't hear people talk about brain failure so much, but that's basically what dementia is. It's like, it's no longer functioning the way it was meant to function because of various and assorted disease processes. And I say to the nurses now, if someone's congestive heart failure was getting worse, would you try and talk them out of having their symptoms? No, would you say, well, you know, if I just explain this better, he'll stop having shortness of breath. No, we don't do that. But for some reason, with behaviors, with brain failure, we, you know, it's just human nature. We somehow have this idea that we can, if we explain enough or whatever, that we can change what's going on. That's such a beautiful example. Accepting that goes a long way to reduce not only their frustration, but yours as well. And of course they mirror us. So if I'm jacked up, they're going to be jacked up and just goes on and on and on. So that's such a good example. I mean, partially what I hear what I hear you doing is using their language. You're using the nurse's language, you know, to accurately understand. And I love the way that you just kind of pull out the the idea of brain failure. And then not expecting someone to have to turn their brain on overdrive to be able to understand the stimulation and understand the language and the request. I mean, really good information. I know that's going to be helpful to so many to reframe Which that. Is, I mean, that's, that's a big part of why I've been so rabid about during the pandemic about hospitals saying no, no visitors under any circumstances, including for people with dementia, which it's abusive. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. I'm really, I, I, um, I have seen so much as, as have you and other family members and healthcare professionals. I think that everybody is, if not concerned, infuriated about what we're seeing with our older adults, especially those that don't have a voice. Well, if you have dementia and you go to a hospital and nobody comes with you, then you have no voice. And Nobody seemed to be that concerned about it. There was actually, it was last spring. And so I'll give them a little bit of 
grace because it was early on in the pandemic and nobody knew what was up. But there was an 86-year-old woman in New York who had dementia. She had belly pain, went to the ER. They would not let anyone come in and stay with her. So she comes in, turned out she had a bowel blockage. They were going to keep her, but, you know, she was kind of chilling and she was tired. So she finally went to sleep. Well, the ER nurse with 10,000 other things to do in the next three minutes thought, oh, good, and went on her merry way doing her business. Well, Janie was the woman's name. Janie woke up and had no idea where she was and nobody was around. So she does what makes sense. She pulled the EKG leads off her chest, goes toggling down the hall to find some humans and see what the heck's going on. Where am I and why am I here? And as she came up the hall, she stumbled. Well, there was another patient standing in the hall with a rolling IV pole that she was pushing around with her IV hung on it. And so it was right about there that Janie stumbled. Well, she instinctively reached up for the pole. The other patient became furious because everybody was freaked that if you look at me, I'm going to get COVID from you. Mm -hmm. So when Janie reached for the pole, this woman went berserk and shoved her really hard. She fell backwards and hit her head, sustained a brain injury, and died the next morning from the brain injury. So, you know, these things that we've set up to, quote, unquote, protect people are killing them in the same way that, you know, they say, we don't want anybody in the nursing homes because you're going to bring COVID and that's going to kill them. Well, you know, being deprived of their loved ones for a complete yeah. calendar years killing them faster. It is, yeah. Um, I go in, I do a lot of uh, suicidal ideation assessments. And of course, as you can imagine, that has increased drastically this year. And, and you're right, I'm seeing the same thing. I'm seeing the isolation and the disconnection from human beings playing more of a role in, in someone's health and really longevity than anything else. Well, I mean, I don't know why people are surprised when you think about it. When we talk about these orphans in these third world countries who, you know, they're born and then they have no no human stimulation. And what are the long-term effects of that? Well, do you think maybe these adults need human contact, physical contact, stimulation, relationship just as much as those infants do. And when they're deprived of it, they're affected just as severely as the kids. As anyone. Are. Yep. As anybody. And when people have dementia, when an individual has a type of dementia, we all we know that they rely on others so much to stay grounded and in, in the present world and to the point that we see folks shadowing their caregivers, you know, oh, and their family members. And and so to take that away, that connection. It's, it's the them. ultimate pulling out the rug from under them. Yeah. But there actually there have been some different lawsuits. There actually was a gentleman, I believe it was in Arizona whose wife was in a home and he sued and actually won the case. He said they had no right to keep him away from her. And I wish more people had done that. There was, as far as the hospital, 
not letting people with dementia have somebody stay with them. There were several advocacy groups that filed a complaint with the Federal Office of Civil Rights. They filed a complaint against the state of Connecticut and Hartford Hospital that the hospital was discriminating against people with dementia because, because of their policies, those patients were getting care that was not up to the same level as other patients were getting as a direct result of their disability. And they actually, the Office of Civil Rights weighed in on the side of the advocacy groups and said, yeah, this is a violation of civil rights under the American with Disabilities Act. You can't just arbitrarily say, no, you can't have someone with you. So it's, yeah. it's been an uphill. It, ha- it has. And unfortunately, it, 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 it's been bad. <laughs> and that's why people are yeah starting to speak out. And I'm curious. I know I'm sure our listeners are curious, too. Are there any ad like do you are you aware of any advocacy groups or um oh, hey, people can reach out if I mean we have a lot of listeners that are caring not only caring for their loved one in their home but also caring for a loved one who lives in a facility or yeah, their loved one they go to the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if a loved one is in a facility, their best bet is to talk to an ombudsman. And even though it varies a little bit from state to state, they pretty much, they are advocates for residents and families. And all anybody has to do is pull up Uncle Google and type in ombudsman, O-M-B-U-D-S-M-A-N, ombudsman, in X for their state, and they can find the ombudsman for their area and how to get in touch with them. That ombudsman actually have a national group. It's the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care. And unfortunately, they got saddled with that three-page title. Because somebody many years ago that initiated it, I don't know, they, it was too many words. But anyway, we call it the consumer voice. And if you look, if you if you Google the consumer voice, you will eventually find this organization. And they are right up in the middle of dealing with Medicare and Medicaid at a federal level and helping people advocate at state levels to get these things changed. Wonderful. That's great. I didn't realize I'm very familiar with ombudsmen's at, or ombudswomen. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Whatever. <laughs> and I, but I love to hear that on a national level, they've been so involved in what's happening. And well, they, they have been rattling chains from the get-go with this whole thing. And in fact, just a few weeks ago, well, I think it was March the 10th, Medicare, Medicaid, the federal office, CMS, you'll hear people say it's the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, which are, that's who sets the national standards for nursing homes, finally came out with a new set of guidelines you know, now that people are vaccinated, it's like, okay, <laughs> you know, you were keeping me out because, so now what's the deal? They finally came up 
came out with new guidelines saying that residents had a right to have their family members with them. Unfortunately, that is their set of guidelines. They don't have the authority to make that law. Each state sets laws. The legislature says you can go in, you can't go in, what the guidelines are for that state. And I don't remember ever a time when state legislatures ignored or bypassed the guidelines of the central Medicare group. But this whole pandemic has been politicized so much that, you know, there are states that are saying, no, we're not, we're not going to go by that. And it's, so. And even the individual facilities, from what I can, oh yeah, I'm, it's like they're not, the not facilities, yeah, they're we're not fine. Like, yeah, call the ombudsman, call your attorney. Yes. It, it's you know, nice guys finish last, unfortunately. And um, then time is of the essence. I mean, exactly. That's it. It's like, well, you know, the whole thing with the hospitals not letting families in. And, you know, we were, we knew, I knew the Office for Civil Rights was working on it. Everybody was screaming about it. But it was obvious that hospitals, hospital associations are like, like trying to turn the Titanic. By the time you turn the damn thing, it's already, you know, hit the iceberg and sunk. Yeah, the damn so, done. you know, one of the things that I did was I was like, okay, I've got this huge audience. <laughs> In this Facebook group we've, that is for dementia caregivers. So what I did was I was like, okay, well, we, we just need to educate people what they can do, yes. you know, when they go to the ER. And so I made them a, a little card to keep in their wallet. Okay, this is what you say when you get to the ER and they say, no, you cannot go in. You tell them. One, my loved one cannot provide informed consent and they cannot monitor and maintain their own safety. Don't just stick to the script. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, you say, I will need a copy of the hospital policy saying that I cannot accompany them. Because what you find half the time is people are saying, well, this is the policy. Well, no, actually, now that you mention it, that's not the policy. So you ask, tell them they can't take care of themselves. You need a copy of the policy. And the third thing you say is, I would like it noted in the chart that I made you aware that my loved one cannot maintain their own safety without direct supervision at all times. By the time you say those three things, nine times out of 10, they're going to go, oh, what the heck? Because when you start using legal type language, the bullies. And you're making sense. I mean, you're calling it out and it makes sense. Um, Yeah. I mean, tell me what about that is not true. What about that 
is aggressive or, and I always tell families, I'm like, look, here's the one thing you got to remember. The person you're talking to in the ER is not the person who set the rules. So it's the old, you can catch a lot more flies with honey than with vinegar. So no matter how angry or disgusted you are with the situation to back it down and just take out your little card and read it if you have to, (laughs) but just, just keep it cool but assert your rights. And this is perfect. Gail, this is so perfect for our podcast, because that's, again, the goal of having this platform is to share information with people that need it and talk about what a beautiful thing that you did. I mean, to just put that card out, let people know what they can say, quite simply, tell our audience again, your Facebook group so that they can find you. If they go on Facebook, and they look up Alzheimer's, and dementia caregivers support. Just type that into the search bar. A couple of different groups will come up. We'll be the only one with actually we're up to 53,000 members now. Wow, congrats. Our, our profile, our profile picture is big purple flowers. So you can find us. You have to answer a few questions to get in because we are very aggressive about keeping out salespeople, researchers, etc. In fact, the intro to our rules say that we have a sole purpose to be a haven mm. for caregivers where they can share their struggles without fear of judgment or reprisal. What people share in that group, it's a closed group, so you can go in there and say you're your family's being jerks and it won't show up on a page that they have access to. Anyway, a safe, a safe the other space thing they can do, if you miss anything of what I'm yakking about here today, come see me on the web, thedementianurse.com. I actually have an article there about, you know, the three things to say when the hospital says you can't come in. There's a lot of different bits and pieces there that you can go back to. Love it. This is so helpful. But I I really want to take a couple minutes and talk about your book because this, I'm telling you, I know that our listeners can't see, but this book, uh, so I, I will make an admission. I am the worst reader I have, you know, ADD and my mind's all over the place. <laughs> I'll see you a minute ago. <laughs> but let me tell you, when I picked up this book, the way that you have the chapters lined out, their sections, and every section, you have a really neat section that says what to say, to do, what to ask your doctor. You have that like with every topic that you're addressing in this book. It's really easy to read. And it's just been so appreciated, obviously, the more. Well, well, first tell us, when did the book come out? And then I'd love for you to just give us a little idea about what to expect if you were to read this book. It came out in January of 2020. So it's been just a little over a year since it came out. and. It actually has done very well. And the reason I set it up the way I did and the reason I wrote it was I just felt really strongly that caregivers needed something down and dirty. I don't have time to read a 16-page chapter Mm -hmm. to find out about what am I supposed to do here. 
or who am I supposed to call? What am I supposed to ask the lawyer? People don't have time. They need information and they need it now. You know, everybody, the book, The 36-Hour Day, which has been the Bible of dementia care for decades. And it's a great book. They're very diligent about coming out with new editions periodically to keep the information fresh, but it's over 400 pages. Yeah. And the Caregiver's Guide to Dementia, I think it's like 183, somewhere in there. Let me, let me tell our audience, you, you've separated it into three parts. Part one is understanding dementia. Part two is caring for somebody with dementia. And part three is caring for yourself. I mean, that to me covers the whole. <laughs> That's where yeah. the rubber hits the road. It's like, exactly. okay. Yep. And thank you so much for including that third. I, I, I think that so many other healthcare professionals and, and other folks that aren't living with or caring for somebody that has dementia, they don't fully understand the importance of caring for the caregiver and why that's so necessary. So thank you for putting that as your third well, section in your book. The, the thing is, and a lot of times when people say to caregivers, well, don't forget to take care of yourself. And you're like, well, Great. I'd love to. Which day are you going to come by and stay with them so I can go care for myself? People just don't get it. But the thing is, people think it's indulgent or whatever. The truth of the matter is, and there are actually studies that verify this, that hands down, the number one factor for a person with dementia the number one factor in their quality of life is the mental and emotional health of their primary caregiver. Wow. And it makes sense mm -hmm. because if you're stressed and strung out, you have no bandwidth to be able to try and understand what's going on with your loved one. So when we run ourselves ragged, thinking this is what I need to do. Well, frankly, you're not doing your loved one a bit of good. You're really not. It's counterintuitive, but it's reality that we've got to take time away to regain a perspective so that we can provide better care. And if we don't do that, I can promise you, your care is going to suffer and your loved one's going to suffer because of it. Absolutely. And the statistics that are out there about the primary caregiver that ends up in the hospital or with chronic health conditions or dies before. The, I cannot tell you the number of times and I'll sit there and I'm like, well, it's going to be a race here to see who goes down first. And it's very sad, but it's true. We don't have anything to compare this to, you know, I mean, when I was in nursing school 40 years ago, nobody ever heard of Alzheimer's and now it's everywhere, but we don't have a history, a right. shared experience. You know, we didn't know watching our mother take care of our grandmother with Alzheimer's, you know, back then they just called them kind of the eccentric aunt and you know, locked them in the attic when guests came or whatever had to be done. Yeah. 
And yeah, we don't have any clear models. We're groping in the dark. We're groping in the dark. And that's why I wrote the book, because I was like, okay, people just need to know. Yeah. And it makes me insane that the health care system does not educate people, does not train people, which is the other reason I do what I do. I mean, I looked around and I said, oh, this is great, because people that were advocates in dementia care training with caregivers, there are lots of them, but they're all social workers or people who have cared for a loved one. And I'm like, why are there no medical slash nursing type people doing this? Because it's a medical problem. But anyway, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) Well, and luckily you wrote it down. (laughs) That's right. Well, Gail, this has been such a fabulous conversation. I am so grateful that you took time out of your day to, you know, meet with us and bring up this conversation. Is there anything else, you know, that that you would like our guests to to know uh, about you or anything that we haven't touched on? You can find out what I'm up to by coming to my website, thedimensionnurse.com. I did start in February publishing a monthly online magazine called Dementia Aware. And it has some in-depth articles that go beyond a blog post. I just couldn't deal with the blogging thing. I'm like, people... (laughs) People need a little more meat than that sometimes. Yes. So you can find out about that there. And, you know. Is there a way to get on a, um, do you, like an email list? Is that something that. Yes. And in fact, if you go to my website and sign up for my email list, you will get the current month's issue of Dementia Aware. So you can see what that's about and so on. And. We're starting to sell fidget blankets and do all kinds of adventuresome things. So my goal is to be the one-stop shop. You know, you can get knowledge. You can get aprons that don't look like bibs for babies. We got all kinds of things going on. Oh, man. Fabulous, Gail. I am so, again, thank you so much for coming on. And I know that we will have repeat interviews. (laughs) I always say, that's my motto. I know everything and what I don't know, I'm not afraid to make up. So (laughs) just roll with that. It's worked for me this far. Oh, well, I hope everybody enjoyed this interview. I will definitely post the links and the contacts. It's just important that all of us are aware of the resources that are out there in the world because they're there. They really are. It's just like you said, Gail, when you're in the middle of it and you can't hardly even come up for air, it's hard to take the time to sit down and find these resources. And so that's what this podcast is for. That's what your Facebook group is for. That's what, you know, that's what we're trying to do is to bring the information to you to make it easier. I hope you enjoyed this episode. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute, nor is it meant to convey professional, legal, psychological, financial, or medical advice. If you can use such services, please seek them out from someone you trust.